Welcome to the Mercy Commons podcast. Thank you for joining us today. We trust that the Word of God encourages you and that the Holy Spirit empowers you. It's, it's funny how Sean mentioned uh, his, his dog, um, because uh, some of you know we have a dog. It's an English uh, Staffordshire Terrier. And uh, I, like Brittany Prentice, am a dog liker. I'm not a dog lover. I'm a dog liker. Um, she's shaking her head. Maybe she isn't even a dog liker. Um, but one of the challenges with, with uh, him is he's, he's beginning to actually test the limits of the kind of alpha, beta idea that we have in the home. And the way in which he is pursued by different members of the family changes. Um, so if he is pursued by Karn, for example, they will be like, Bono, hey Bono, come, please come, please will you come here? Uh, if he's pursued by me, it's more like, now, come here, now, now, I said now. And the problem is, is that he's beginning to run away, so every time I say now, he, he kind of goes down, sticks his butt in the air, and starts wagging his, his tail. And he thinks, come here now, means this is time to play. It's very different when we are pursued, or the idea of pursuit, when someone wanders and is lost, or where someone is actively trying to run away. It produces something different in us, whether you're a parent, whether you're a pet owner, even where there's a sense in which you want something and you're pursuing it and it's just staying there and you're pursuing it, or you want something and it's run away. Now, the story of Jonah is not the story of God pursuing someone that is lost and wandered. The story of Jonah is pursuing a proud and stubborn man. And the story of Jonah is actually more the story of God's relentless grace and mercy in the pursuit of rebels. We call it the story of Jonah because it is the story of a man, but really what we're going to learn over this next series is just how loving, gracious, compassionate, and powerful God can be, and especially to his enemies. You know, for many of us, we glaze over the story of Jonah. It's like folklore or a nice bedtime story or even, you know, as Karen's read, oh, that's cute. And many of us don't believe it. And I want to say if you're, if you're a seeker and the idea of a man that hears messages from God, runs away, God sends a storm, the storm throws him, he gets thrown into the sea, this massive fish swallows him and he stays in the fish for three days, and then he gets vomited out, and he goes and preaches to the people that God calls him to preach to. If that's unbelievable for you, that makes sense. But if you're a Christ follower, and most of your faith is built around the idea that Jesus Christ came, died, and was resurrected, which is the bigger miracle? Is the bigger miracle the fact that Jesus was raised from the dead or that someone could live in the belly of a fish for three days. And so I just want to ask for a sense of kind of intellectual honesty, especially if you are a Christ follower. These things were not only possible, but probable in the way that God did them. We know that this is not an allegory. We know it's not a parable because we know that Jesus referred to it. In fact, Jesus referred to Jonah by name, which was incredibly rare in his ministry while he was on earth. So we're going to start and we're going to read the first three verses of Jonah. And I'm going to be reading out of the New King James Version. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it, for their wickedness has come before me. But Jonah 
arose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. And he went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Now, who was, who were the Ninevites? Who was Assyria? Now, Assyria at that time was the most violent, brutal, and evil empire known to man. These are some of the things that the Assyrians would do. The Assyrians, in, the, in, in a time of battle, when the, uh, the battlefield was scattered with bodies, they would go and they would cut off both legs and one arm of the person that was still alive and then mockingly shake their hand with the other one. They would force people um, that had been captured to carry the decapitated heads of their families on poles as they paraded them through the city. They would skin people alive, flay them, and they would hang the skins of the dead people on the city walls. Now, these weren't atrocities committed by one or two people that had gone too far. These were things that the Assyrian Empire celebrated to the degree that they would actually write or carve these reliefs in the stone palaces and say, this is who we are. And so when you hear a message from God saying, I want you to go these pe to these people, we can understand that there may be a little bit of fear. Israel lived in constant vigilance against the Assyrians. They were the enemy. There was no doubt about that. Now, the fact that Israel had enemies is not a rare thing. Uh, Israel had many er enemies. The fact that God would use prophets to pronounce hope or judgment was also not a rare thing. But the book of Jonah is rare in that it's, it's more of a narrative than it is a prophetic book. For most of us that have walked with Jesus for a while, we'll, we'll understand the prophetic books are basically God saying to a prophet, this is what I want you to say to this nation. Now, the book of Jonah is, is a narrative. It's about what happens to the prophet himself. There isn't really much direct prophecy even in the book of Jonah. It's a, it's a book that helps us with foreshadows and types, and, and we can see glimpses into who Jesus is, answers to question about justice and mercy. Those are the kinds of things that, that we can see in the book of Jonah, but there isn't much direct prophecy. So it's a, it's a rare book. It's also a rare prophet. Jonah is a rare prophet because in 2 Kings, verses 14 to 25, he actually prophesies to the king of Israel. And he warns them about the Assyrians. And the king of Israel, what he does, Jeroboam, is strengthens the defenses and the boundaries around his city against the Assyrians. So we can see for a long time that the Assyrians were a hated enemy of Israel. It's also incredibly rare because this is Jonah being told by God to actually go to the city that he is declaring judgment over. Now, there were many prophets that declared judgment over various nations, but God never asked them to actually go to that place. But he asked Jonah to go to that place. There's another prophet called Nahum, and God tells Nahum to speak judgment over Nineveh, and this is what Nahum says. Woe to the bloody city, all full of lies and plunder, no end to the prey, the crack of the whip, the rumble of the wheel, galloping horse and bounding chariot, horsemen charging, flashing sword and glittering spear, hosts of slain, heaps of corpses, dead bodies without ends. They stumble over the dead bodies. Wow, right? You, you didn't expect necessarily to hear that this morning. 
And, and so what happens is we, we have this picture of the way that God used to deal with nations that were opposed to Israel. There was this remote sense of there will be a judgment on this nation. And the challenge that we have is that the, the, the prophecy that Nahum is speaking is actually reasonable. It's palatable. It's intense, but there's a sense of right and wrong in that. The Assyrians in Nineveh were so evil that they deserved to be destroyed. And in fact, if Nineveh was to be destroyed, then Israel would be safer. Then justice would be served. Then bad people get what they deserve. And everything is all right. So we have this oppressed and afraid person told to go to the Assyrian Empire. And now we think, as the original reader, now it's on like Donkey Kong. Now God is going to do something, and now we're going to see them pay. Now remember, at this stage, as we read the book, we don't know exactly why he refused to go. We have some clues, but at this stage, we don't know why he has refused to go. It's a very rare phenomenon, though. Let's be honest. It's a rare book. It's a rare prophet, and his response is even rarer. Now, throughout the Old Testament, God will speak to people and will ask them to do something. And so we know that Moses didn't want to do it. We know that Jeremiah didn't want to do it. Um, but ultimately, they moaned, they argued with God, but ultimately they did what they wanted. Jonah is the only prophet that thought it would be a wise idea to run away from God. In fact, the Psalms are full of Israel and the writers of the Psalms and David saying, I cannot flee from your presence. Where can I go in order to, to flee from you? Because you are everywhere. And Jonah decides, I'm going to do that. I know, right? Not a smart guy. And we'll see he's not the smartest guy on the planet. The main purpose of Jonah is to show us God's relentless grace in the pursuit of rebels. And yet there are two also um, kind of sub-themes in here. And the one is hate and the other one is mission. So it's the grace of God. It's the way we engage with our world, and then it's also the idea of mission. So the question I want to ask us this morning is, how do we view our world? God says to Jonah, I want you to go and preach repentance to a group of people that are not your race, that are not your nation. They are pagans, they are idolaters, and they are a major threat, not only to the security, but to the interests of the nation that you live in. I want you to go to preach to them so that they can come to repentance. And we see Jonah's nationalism and racism will be revealed later on, but not right now. And, and it's weird, as I've said, because Jonah is part of what is called the oppressed class, and yet he is being told to go to the oppressor. This is unfair. God, why would you ask him to do this? Why do you think that there is something good about sending a message of grace to people like that? You know, this week has been... A, the, the idea of division and hatred and outrage and power has been freshly highlighted. And even as I was praying and I was preparing for this, I, I felt like God wanted to ask us a couple of questions about the state of our own hearts. And the first question I wanted to ask is, who are your Ninevites? Who are your Ninevites? Who do you avoid? Who do you fear? Who do you hate? Who do you hold in contempt? About two months ago, I spoke about the difference between hot hate and cold contempt. I said hot hate is where someone wants to do something violent. Someone is shouting, shaking their fists at you, yelling at you, swearing at you. There's, there's the sense of hot hate. But there's also cold contempt. Cold contempt is 
the sarcastic little throwaway comment, the one-liner, the this, this sense that I'm better than you. There's, there's the sense of kind of, um, it's a smarter way to hate someone. They're both the opposite of what Jesus has called us to do, which is to love one another. Fear is a very powerful fertilizer for the seed of hate to grow into the fruit of violence. Fear is a very powerful fertilizer for the seed of hate to grow into the fruit of violence. Now, we have to admit that the line between what we fear and what we despise is very thin. I want you to think about this. I, and many of you know that I, I grew up in South Africa during the apartheid years, and I was a teenager being taught in school and, 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 uh, during those times. Now, one of the things that they did in the context of apartheid learning was they did not teach me necessarily to hate black people. What they taught me was to fear black people. I would be in a class, and they would remind me that there are eight black people for every one white person in South Africa. That because black people have been oppressed for so many years, they are angry, and who knows what they're going to do. And so this fear just sat in me, growing. No one needed to actually say, I think you should not like this group of people. All they needed to do was plant the seed of fear. And the more frightened I became, the less willing I became to engage, the less willing I became to talk, the less willing I became to want to listen to a different perspective, understand. And that's what led to this massive division. I want to say this, let's not caricature the idea of, of racism as is often caricatured in the context of the media because the only racist people are old white men. That's not true. During this time of uh, COVID, my wife went through this very odd phase. Now, remember uh, during the time of COVID, the, the, the emergence of Karens, right? And, 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 and this idea that Karens were like older, white, entitled ladies that complained all the time about everything. Um, and so people would post these different things uh, w with regards to, to Karen. So Karen goes to Starbucks one day, and in the middle of this, and they ask her, what's her name? And Karen is like, I, I don't want to say because if I say my name is Karen, people are just automatically going to think that I'm entitled and I'm going to complain about something. And, and so the idea of bigotry is not necessarily just one way. The idea of bigotry is this, that you believe that you are better than another group of people. And it can go in any direction in any way. That you deserve more grace. That what they have done is worse than what you do. So let's be careful about that. Who are your Ninevites? Are they men? Are they women? Are they white? Are they black? Are they conservative? Are they liberal? Are they academics? Are they blue collar? Who are they? Now, because in the, in, part of the challenge that we need to deal with is that I believe that we all have a Ninevite that is sticking in our heart somewhere. That if we are to be honest that we are fearful or anxious or proud about this group of people. And I believe God wants to reveal that to us. Now, let me say this. I believe that all people are equal, but not all forms of government are equal. I've lived in Saudi Arabia. In Saudi Arabia, we would go to the market, 
um, on Saturday. Their, their Sabbath was Thursday. Friday would go to the market on Saturday. And there would be this group of people gathered around the market. And what, they, what, what were they doing? They were chopping off the hand of someone that they'd found stealing. They would chop off his hand, stick it in burning tar to cauterize it. My mom went out dressed much the same like Karen was dressed. And she was manhandled by men because that's how prostitutes dress. Up until two years ago, women couldn't get a driver's license in Saudi Arabia. All people are equal, but not all forms of government are equal. And to say that there are some forms of government, that all forms of government are equal is not correct. There are some forms of government that actually reflect the common grace of God much better than others. There is a massive difference between nationalism and the idea of being grateful to be in a nation. That's why what happened on Wednesday was so sad for me. Because I've lived in Saudi Arabia. I've lived in South Africa. I was born in Zimbabwe. I have never been proud to be part of those nations. It was never something like I could say, this is me. And most of you will know that if I claim any ancestry, it's my Greek ancestry, right? Okay? Because, because there was a sense in which I wasn't proud to be able to do that. Well, this, this week I was just saddened because I wasn't proud of what was happening. And not just on Wednesday. The whole of 2020. We are to decry the Spirit, call for accountability, but we have to draw the line at hating other people. Jesus never said we wouldn't have enemies. Never. There wasn't a sense of like, if you live this way, everyone will see the very motive of your heart and understand that you are a good person and you want to do good. He never said that. But he gave us a revolutionary way to think and act towards the people that are our enemies. Israel feared and hated the Assyrians. And they were justified in that. No one was saying that they weren't justified in that. But God is teaching us and Jonah through the series and I want to submit this to you, that there are three main reasons that we cannot just write a group of people off. Whatever that group is, we cannot write them off. The group that we are anxious about, the group that we fear, that we have disdain for. Why can't I just write people off? Three reasons. One, because we're all created in the image of God. Two, because we are all endowed with common grace. And three, because we have received mercy when we deserve judgment. So let's look at the first one. Every single human being is created in the image of God. When the tragedy um, happened with, with George Floyd, it was an interesting narrative. And the narrative was this. Well, let's find out what kind of life this man led. Okay, you know, he's been in trouble with the law before. Um, He's, he's had felonies, etc. This is the one narrative. The other narrative is like he's a good dad. He's trying to get his life together. All of those kinds of things. Can I submit to you that none of that matters? Can I submit to you that the reason that that was a tragedy was because this is a man created in the image of God and that should be our centering point? That everything, for every single person, if we understand that every single person is created in the image of God, it will change the way we think Act, respond to different people. If we understand that even though this image is broken, it's marred, it's not the full image of God, yet there is some sense of eternal seed in the person that I am responding to, in the person that I am interacting with, I guarantee you it will change the way that you respond. 
if a person is hateful towards you, if a person just doesn't want to listen, if a person is paranoid, if you say, God, remind me that this person is created in the image of God, it will change the way that we respond. John Calvin, and for many of you who know this, John Calvin is, is um, a, a theologian. And um, he says this about the image of God. Each Christian will so consider his neighbor, so consider himself a debtor to his neighbor because of the image of God in them. Each Christian will exercise kindness towards them and set no other limit other than the end of his resources. This is John Calvin, okay? Don't look at their character, their actions. Do not consider men's evil intention, but look upon the image of God in them, which cancels and effaces their transgressions, and with its beauty and dignity allures us to love and embrace them. And we know the greatest thing that we can do for any human being is to lead them to faith in Jesus Christ. That is the best way to love someone, but it's not the only way to love someone. Jesus showed us this with the parable of the Samaritan. Jesus came here to inaugurate a new kingdom and said, I am the fulfillment of the kingdom. I am the way to the Father. I am the way that you get peace with God and the separation is broken. And yet the parable of the Samaritan shows us that there are ways that we can love those that are created in the image of God. The parable of the Samaritan is literally us being kind to someone that is a threatening enemy of ourselves. And Jesus says, this is a way that you can love. Why? Because he is created in the image of God. This is incredibly difficult. But it is only through the sacrifice of Jesus, the indwelling spirit that fills us with love for our enemies, that we are able to do this. You cannot do this unless the Spirit of God empowers you to do it. Even when you have the Spirit of God dwelling in you, this is an incredibly difficult thing to do. I never thought I'd be distracted by a horse on the embankment. I probably shouldn't have said that. Now you're all looking at the horse. You know what's interesting is we, we have this idea of Old Testament God, New Testament God, and we think that the idea of enemy love started with Jesus. Uh, that Old Testament God was in a bad mood, and when Jesus arrived, things mellowed out, you know? What does Jonah show us? Jonah shows us that God, right from the beginning, was intentionally pursuing his enemies. Right from the beginning. There was a sense in which it does not matter what you've done. It does not matter what sin you've committed. It does not matter what you've said to me or how you've responded to me in the past. I am pursuing you because of my great love and mercy. Nothing you do will stop me from pursuing you, says God. And that did not just start with Jesus. And that's what we learn in the book of Jonah. I had a, an interesting conversation with Maddie uh, probably about a year ago. And uh, just this idea of the image of God and, and what this means and how this can actually change the way we think. And it was after Ahmad Arbery was shot. And... Um, I called Maddie and I said to her, how are you guys, how are you guys doing? Um, Maddie, Maddie's dating um, James, who's uh, African-American. And she said, well, of course I'm sad and I'm broken that these things are still happening. Um, I, I, I can't believe it. 
there's a, there's a sense of madness and anger. But, and, and this is something I never expected her to say, but I'm also praying for those guys. The guys that, the guys that shot him. She said, can you imagine how much bondage you must be in to hate and fear to do something like that? I was flabbergasted. It's one of those moments where being in a body of believers is so critical because as I reach out to be the real cool person and kind of help Maddie figure out what's going on in her life, something just dropped in my soul about the way in which she was responding in, in that scenario. All human beings are created in the image of God. All human beings have the stamp of the divine on them. All human beings are capable of massive evil atrocities. And yet the reality is somewhere in that broken image is the image of God. And if we can remember that, it changes the way that we deal with our words. Every human being is endowed with common grace. Now, what is common grace? Now, common grace are the undeserved blessings that come from God and that man receives regardless of whether they believe in him or not. It's the rain, it's the sun, it's prosperity, it's health and happiness. Common grace beyond that are the natural capacities and gifts that God has given human beings, regardless of whether they believe in him or not. Many of the advances that we live in, in terms of education, in terms of technology, in, in terms of medical advances, those things aren't just developed by people that know and have relationship with God. There is a, a common grace. A common grace in a human being helps our world function better. Common grace in every single human being means that because we're created in the image of God, we have the capacity to do good things, almost like a glimpse of the kingdom. Andrew Murray puts it this way. Common grace are gifts, talents, and aptitudes. And God stimulates them with the interest and purpose to practice virtues, the pursuance of worthy tasks, the cultivation of art and sciences that makes for the benefit and civilization of human race. What does that mean? Well, basically, regardless of sexual orientation, regardless of political affiliation, regardless of race, regardless of faith, regardless of gender, regardless of wealth, Every single human being is able to contribute in this world in a productive way. It's part of the common grace that God has given every single human being. It explains why when I take my car to the mechanic, I don't want to take it to a Christian mechanic. I want to take it to a good mechanic who's not going to rip me off. I'm saying, God, can you endow this man with common grace? So that if he says it's going to cost $3,000, it actually will cost $3,000 and I'm not getting ripped off. Every single one of us have benefited from the common grace of someone else. Every single one of us. People that invented clothes, people that invented cars, people that invented all of those things we've benefited from. And that's one of the ways that helps us humanize people and understand that regardless of whether someone believes the same thing that you believe, they have value because they created in the image of God. And they are able to be productive and able to bring light and able to display something of the, uh, of the Redeemer and Creator of this world because of common grace. However, even though every human being is created in the image of God and every human being is endowed with the capacity for common grace, 
not every single human being will experience the saving and regenerative power of the gospel. This is something that is a gift of God that is accessed by grace through faith. It's a simple transaction. You are repenting from your autonomy and you are saying that I don't want to live my life in the way that I have chosen to live it. And I'm repenting from the way that I've done things. And I'm choosing to submit myself to the Lordship of Jesus. Which means two things. That I'm accepting the fact that his death on the cross meant that the penalty for my sins was paid for. That his resurrection means that the power of sin has been broken. And the fact that he's seated at the right hand of God means that I have fellowship with God through him. Even though not every human being will experience that, it is an experience that every human being is able to experience, should they choose to. Lastly, I deserve judgment, but I've received mercy. What will help us function differently in our world, different to the way that Jonah responded, different to what we've seen over this last year, I deserved judgment, but received mercy. You know, even the word deserve. Is, it's an interesting word, right? Because the minute you say about someone, they don't deserve. They don't deserve my time. They don't deserve my empathy. They don't deserve my money. What are you actually saying? That someone like me does. And so not only are you placing a judgment, Tom Sappington, right? On a whole group of people. Tom wrote an amazing book called Judgments. Very wealth word, well worth the read. Not only am I saying that I'm better than someone, but I'm actually placing a judgment on someone else. This whole idea of deserve is very, very dangerous. Because what happens is when we say this person doesn't deserve, it actually stops the flow of love. When we understand that we didn't deserve, what it does is it makes us question how we deal with our fellow human beings. Scripture is clear about this word deserve, though. Because Scripture tells us that all mankind deserves judgment. Because there is nothing good in the human heart because of our fallen sinful nature. Now remember, these are hard things to carry. are made in the image of God. And yet because of sin, that image is marred. It's like a mirror that's been broken. I can see aspects of who God is in another human being. But some of those things are broken. In order for that mirror to be completely uh, cleansed, we need the sacrifice of Jesus. All mankind deserves judgment. So how do we deal with that? As a Christ follower, the way that I can engage in my world with a sense of enemy love is to be able to understand that I received something I did not deserve. So I received grace. So grace and mercy are like two sides of the same coin. Grace is receiving what we didn't deserve. Mercy is not getting what we do deserve. So I've received sonship. I've received a sense of adoption into God's family. I've received the sense that God has said to me, it doesn't matter what you've done. That's why Jesus walked on this earth to show you what a life looks like that is committed to living in the way that God designed. To also show you that he is the only way that we can do that. And secondly, this is what you did deserve. The pain and the trauma and the death that was placed on Jesus. That separation is what you did deserve. So you didn't deserve grace. You got it if you're a Christ follower. 
You deserve judgment, but you didn't get it. You got mercy if you're a Christ follower. That's partly why we, we are called mercy comments. It's because we have received the extravagant mercy of God. We have to live in that in the way in which we respond to our enemies and the way in which we invite others to join that. How, though, can God be both just and merciful to these brutal Assyrians? How is that possible? Well, let me say this. That isn't even resolved in the book of Jonah. It's not even resolved in the Old Testament. What it does is it gives us clues as to how God is going to resolve that. The only way we see resolution in terms of how can God be both just and merciful is in the New Testament where Jesus comes and the cross is where justice and mercy collide. The cross is that place where God shows himself to be the ultimate in what justice looks like and the ultimate in terms of what mercy looks like. Paul, an apostle who went out and planted many churches, said this about himself, is that he is a debtor to Greeks, to Jews, to barbarians, to the wise, to the unwise. You know, when Paul wrote that in Romans... He had been beaten and abused by every known civilization at that time. Beaten and abused by Jews, beaten and abused by Greeks, beaten and abused by barbarians, wise and unwise. And yet what he tells the church that he's writing to is that because of the grace and mercy that I've received, I am a debtor. I am obliged to show the kind of love that God showed me even to those that are actively or passively rejecting me. We cannot cry mercy on ourselves and judgment on others. That's not how the gospel works. We cry out mercy, period. One of my favorite prayers where, where I don't know how to pray for someone, even for an enemy of mine, it's a simple prayer. Use it. It's helpful. Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on. Now, you can't say that with a sense of judgment. Hear, hear what I'm saying. You're going to be like, I am so angry with Karen for doing whatever. Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on her because she's so... No. When you're saying, Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy, what you're asking is two things. God, will you have mercy on this person because of the mercy that I've received? And God, will you help me to be merciful to this person? That's what you're asking by that simple prayer. Luke 6, verse 27, 28, and some... Um, verses following that, Jesus says, But I say to you, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. And pray for those who spitefully use you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Verse 35, love your enemies. Do good and lend, hoping for nothing in return, and your reward will be great. You will be sons of the Most High. This is my, my favorite portion of the scripture for he is kind to the unthankful and evil he is kind to the unthankful and evil and that should jar you as it should but you know part of the reason that it jars us and maybe the challenge is that is because we don't think that we are unthankful we don't think that we are evil and so we're like yeah god that's so cool that that you are kind to that unthankful person and that evil person. 
My question is, is do we understand how unthankful and evil we were? And that God showed His kindness to us. Verse 36, Therefore, be merciful as your Father also is merciful. Lisa, you can come up here. As I was praying this week, initially not going to preach on, on any of this, just going to give a background on Jonah. My job, our job as, as elders, leaders of the church is to raise your gaze to the person and work of Jesus Christ while not denying that there are things that are going on in the world in which we live. And I felt like God was asking us three questions. Me, so maybe I'm projecting, but I felt like there were three questions that we needed to answer. The first question is, who am I fearful of? Who am I hateful of? Or who do I have this snide, sarcastic contempt in my heart for? This could be personally, could be in your interpersonal relationships, it could be with a group of people. Remember, it doesn't need to be hot hate. Cold contempt is the same thing. Am I guilty of hating or harboring attitudes that would not align with the gospel? God is present to forgive. Am I struggling with guilt or shame or pain? Am I guilty of having done things that have hurt or marginalized or oppressed others? God is present to forgive. Have I been the victim of hate? Have I been the victim of oppression? And now I have two choices, to fear or hate. That isn't the only choice. God is here to heal. Or do I just want to run away? And if I'm honest, that was my response. I'm like, maybe I'm reading the book of Jonah for a reason. You know? God, I don't believe I'm hateful, but I'm tired of all this. I need you to come and empower me. I know how I should live. I want to live that way, but I know that I can't do that without you. I need your spirit to empower me. God is here to forgive. God is here to heal. God is here to empower. You know, I have this argument. We've just been through Christmas. This uh, whole hymn of silent night, holy night. You know, it wasn't silent. When the whole host of angels appears and sings glory to God in the highest hallelujah and people are so afraid they fall down, it's not quiet. You know, the thing about God is that He's not subtle or quiet in the way that He pursues us. The incarnation of Jesus was not subtle or quiet. A virgin birth, are you kidding? A star? People from the Orient coming over to see what is happening? There's nothing quiet about that. Herod killing people under the age of two? There's nothing quiet about that. The way that Jesus inaugurated His kingdom and said, this is what the kingdom of God is like. Demonic activity cease. Someone that is sick be healed. Someone that is dead be raised to life again. There's nothing quiet or subtle about that. What about his death and resurrection? Literally, the earth shook. There was an earthquake. 
Literally, it was dark. His ascension, the, the, the tomb that he was in was empty. The temple curtain torn in two. Nothing quiet or subtle about that. Him ascending into heaven and his disciples seeing him. And then him sending the Holy Spirit, flooding them with authority and power for comfort and commission. Tongues of fire resting on them. 3,000 people coming to faith in one day. Nothing quiet or subtle about that. These are not subtle or obscure clues. God is chasing you with an aggressive affection. And He will not stop. God is the one who obstinately, recklessly pursues all people. And He is on the hunt for rebels to show His uncommon mercy to them. And the cool thing is that He invites us. He invites us, those that have tasted of the uncommon mercy of God, into a pursuit of enemies, into the pursuit of ones we think don't deserve it, into the pursuit of ones that we think are beyond His reach, rebels just like us. Father, thank You for the power of Your Word. Thank you for your grace and the presence of your spirit. Thank you that you are a relentless pursuer. And I pray that as we sit and, and wonder about what is happening in our souls, that you would bring healing where healing needs to happen, that you would bring forgiveness where forgiveness needs to happen, and that you would bring empowerment where we are so desperate to do what you have called us to do. Thank you for listening to the Mercy Commons podcast. If you enjoyed today's content, please rate us and hit subscribe. And if you'd like to learn more about us, visit our website at mercycommons.church.